Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, last Lord's Day, you may recall that we ended the story of Gideon with his death, a death that brought no lasting good to Israel. Indeed, we read at the end of chapter 8 that when Gideon died, As soon as he died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Berith their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. Gideon is dead. And he has left no lasting good to Israel. But what he has left is his sons. And one son in particular is focused upon here now in Judges chapter 9, telling us that the story of Gideon is not yet complete. There is an epilogue to his story, and that epilogue is found here in Judges chapter 9 in the story of Abimelech. Abimelech, you may recall, was named by his father Abimelech, which means my father is king. And here we find in Judges chapter 9 that that which Gideon desired with his heart, even though he rejected it with his mouth, we find that his son desires even more and through much violence and bloodshed seeks to secure the kingship for himself. Well, as the son of Gideon and his Shechemite concubine, Abimelech has a rather unique family situation. On the one hand, He is related to the 70 sons of Gideon in Oprah. These are his brothers. They share the same father. On the other hand, he is related to his mother's relatives in Shechem. These two are his brothers in the extended sense of that word. Sadly, however, Abimelech does not use this unique family situation to bring unity to bring unity to the men of Oprah and the men of Shechem. He does not use his unique family situation to to bring his brothers on both sides together. In fact, he uses his unique family situation to sow seeds of division. He goes to his brothers in Shechem, and he asks them in verse 2, What is better for you, to have all 70 sons of Jeroboam of Gideon rule over you, or is it better just to have one rule over you? The original puts it a little bit more bluntly. Abimelech goes to his brothers in Shechem and says to them literally, what is good for you? And you understand what Abimelech is doing. Like a skilled politician who promises more than he can possibly deliver, Abimelech seeks to secure their vote. I will do you so much good. Choose me to be your king, and I will make all things well. Choose me to be your king, and I will will solve every problem. It will be good for you to have me as your king. This is Abimelech's promise. And he then reminds them who he is. I am your own bone, your own flesh. I'm your brother. Of course you should choose me. And we learn in verses 3 through 5 that that the leaders of Shechem did exactly what Abimelech wanted them to do. They receive him as their brother. 
And they give him 70 pieces of silver. Notice where that silver comes from. It comes from the house of Baal-berit. This is an ominous sign. Abimelech's campaign for king is funded by the treasury of a false god. His campaign advisors are described as, as worthless and reckless men. Men that he had to hire for himself. But none of them are more worthless or more reckless than Abimelech himself. Notice what he does, having secured these 70 pieces of silver, having secured these worthless and reckless men, having secured the support of the men of Shechem. He goes immediately to his father's house in Oprah, and he kills his brothers, the sons of Jeroboam. On one stone. The fact that he does so on one stone is significant. This is a mass execution, a public execution, taking one brother and killing him, taking the next and killing him, taking the next and killing him. One by one by one, he slaughters mercilessly his own flesh and blood. And notice. The correlation here between the 70 shekels of silver and the 70 brothers. It tells us something of the value that Abimelech places on the life of his brothers. They are worth no more to him than one piece of silver. Here then is a leader who does not value life, even the life of his own flesh and blood. We read, however, that one brother did escape, Jotham, Gideon's youngest son. He left and he hid himself. But then the text moves right on to verse 6 to tell us that after this this bloody and brutal and merciless act of slaughtering his own brothers in Oprah, the leaders of Shechem come to Abimelech and make him king. Here is a man of great bravery. Here is a man who will do us good. So they took him and made him king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. We don't know a lot about that oak at the pillar of Shechem, but it certainly has pagan overtones. There is nothing godly about this. There is nothing godly about Abimelech. This is not a man whom God has raised up for the deliverance of his people. Abimelech is not the man of God's choosing. Abimelech is the man whom the people choose. Well, immediately after this, the one brother who escapes, Jotham, appears back on the scene, verses 7 through 15. I should tell you that Jotham's name means literally, the Lord is perfect. Or the Lord is honest. He appears here much like the angel of the Lord did early on in the story of Gideon. He appears here in this story as if he were a messenger of the Lord. Notice where he appears. He stands on the top of Mount Gerizim. Shechem lay between two great mountains, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, that place where the Israelites had come with half of the tribes on Mount Gerizim, half of the tribes on Mount Ebal. From Mount Ebal, they pronounced the curses of the covenant. From Mount Gerizim, they pronounced the blessings of the covenant. Jotham comes in a piece of irony and stands on Mount Gerizim, the place where the blessings of the covenant had been proclaimed, and he stands there to tell a fable and to warn 
of a curse. This fable is the story of trees. The story of trees who want to anoint a king over them. The trees come and they ask the olive tree to reign over them. But the olive tree refuses the kingship because the olive tree is already doing so much good for the people and serving the people. They ask the fig tree to reign over them, but the fig tree refuses the kingship because the fig tree too is already doing much good and serving the people. And so then they come to the vine and ask the vine to reign over them, but the vine also refuses the kingship because the vine too is is already doing so much good and, and serving the people. And so finally they come to the bramble, verse 15, and they ask the bramble to reign over them. And the bramble, who unlike the olive, the fig, and the vine, is really doing nothing good and is really doing nothing to serve the people at all, the bramble accepts the kingship. And in accepting the kingship, he boasts of things like integrity. He boasts of things like good faith. He boasts of things like like covenant commitment. But he promises far more than he can possibly deliver. He is no olive tree. He is no fig tree. He is no He's bramble. He promises the people that they can come and rest in his shade. He has no shade. He's bramble. All he has is thorns. And you see something of the fiery character of the bramble and the fact that he pronounces a curse upon them if, if they don't keep covenant with him. He says, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Here is a king who has come not to serve, but to be served. Kingship will not change his character. It will only prove his character. He is nothing more than bramble. And you understand Jotham's point. He makes it rather clear in verses 16 through 21 as he interprets the fable for us. As one author put it, Jotham's point is this. The problem is not the kingship. The problem is the character of the king. Abimelech is a self-centered Ambitious, violent, power-hungry, boastful pretender. He is not interested in serving the people. He is ambitious and wants power only for himself. He is not interested in doing good to the people. He is more interested in power and in serving himself. He is like the bramble who promises so much but has nothing to offer. In fact, verse 21, Jotham, his very own brother, must flee for his life. Well, we go on in verses 22 and following to learn that Abimelech ruled over Israel for three years. Notice in verse 22, the author does not call Abimelech a king. He will not ascribe that title to Abimelech because Abimelech is not worthy to be called such. 
We learn furthermore in verses 22 and following that God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, reminding us again that God is the great king, the one who rules over all, that the, that the hearts of kings are in God's hand, and he directs them like a watercourse wherever he pleases. God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the men of Shechem, these men who had once been allies, will now become mortal enemies. We read that the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. The language there is significant. It tells us that they did not keep covenant with him. They did not keep agreement with him. They dealt treacherously with him. Why? Verse 24, that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jeroboam might come, and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. God is bringing justice upon Shechem and Abimelech. Well, how did they deal treacherously with Abimelech? We read that the leaders of Shechem put men in ambush who robbed all who passed by. And they did this as an effort to undermine the the leadership of Abimelech. Abimelech couldn't keep the people safe. He couldn't do them good. He couldn't, he couldn't deliver on his promises. And very quickly, the support of the people fell away from Abimelech. And then we learn in verses 26 and following that even as his rule is being undermined, a foe appears. A foe comes in to hasten the deed of undermining the rule and the, the leadership of Abimelech. We're introduced in verse 26 to one Gaal, the son of Ebed. His name means literally Gaal, son of a servant. And at last we think, well, here is one who will come and, and be a true leader. One who will come and have the best interests of the people before him. One who will come and serve the people. But as he makes his case for leadership in verses 26 through 29, we, we find Gaal, son of Ebed, Gaal, son of servant, really no different than Abimelech himself. He makes his campaign for leadership in much the same terms as Abimelech did. He too makes promises that he cannot fulfill. Nevertheless, the people are all too ready to throw their support behind him. After all, he's a man campaigning on change. He will change things. And the people are all too eager for that. And so his leadership is celebrated with a party. A party in the house of their God. Notice the irony in that. The very house from which Abimelech's rule had been funded now becomes the house in which they party even as they revile the name of Abimelech. While things continue to unfold rather quickly, Zabul, the ruler of the city and the man who had been appointed by Abimelech, Zabul informs Abimelech of all that Gaal was up to and then advises Abimelech as to how to make war with Gaal. Abimelech follows the advice and Gaal is defeated. You can read all about that in verses 30 through 41. The tragedy, however, comes in the next verses, verses 42 through 45. For Abimelech does not stop by defeating those foes who rose up against him. No, the people of Shechem have committed, in Abimelech's sight, the unforgivable sin. They have failed to support him. They have failed to support him even as the people of Sukkoth and Penuel had 
refused to support Gideon, his father. And you remember what Gideon did to them. Well, look at what Abimelech does to the people of Shechem. The next day, the citizens of Shechem go out into their fields to go about their daily work. And what does Abimelech do? Their king, their leader, their ruler. He goes out and slaughters them all. He also raises the city to the ground and he sows it with salt. Not enough just to destroy it. He sows it with salt so that nothing can grow there again. You can read about all of that in verses 42 through 45. Well, a number of them escaped in verses 46 through 49. The leaders of Shechem heard of all this and they sought refuge in the stronghold of El Barith, their God, at the Tower of Shechem. And what did Abimelech do? Still not satisfied with the destruction he has brought against his own people, Abimelech goes and takes brushwood and, and lays it at the foot of the tower and he sets it on fire, burning to death. 1,000 of his own men and women, his brothers, his sisters. And again, you see the irony. The leaders of Shechem die in the very place where they had partied and reviled Abimelech's name, but also in the very place from which they had funded Abimelech in the first place. This was the tower of their God. Their God proved to be no refuge at all. And neither did their king. Their own king devoured them with fire. And the tragedy grows still worse. Because Abimelech is still not satisfied. He wants more. Tyrants always do. And so verses 50 through 57, he goes to Thebes and captures it meaning to exercise his authority and his power still further. And the people of Thebes fled to the strong tower of Thebes and and shut themselves up in it, thinking he could do to this tower as he did to the tower of Shechem. Abimelech draws near to burn it to the ground. And just when we think he's going to be successful in in that very endeavor, we read of a certain woman, a woman who threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. And you see something of the poetic justice of the passage. Abimelech killed his brothers on one stone, and now his head is crushed by one stone. Abimelech not wanting to die in dishonor at the hands of a woman, calls upon his armor-bearer to come and kill him. And his armor-bearer does. As one author put it, to the very end of his life, Abimelech remains belligerent, defiant, and arrogant. Even in death, Abimelech cares only for himself and his own reputation. When the people see that he's dead, they give up the fight, and they return home. There's no rallying to the cause of Abimelech. He doesn't have one. 
other than that of promoting himself. And so at his death, all the people laughed, and, and then we are left with this commentary at the end of the chapter, verses 56 and 57. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads, and upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jeroboam. Here is, here is a sobering picture of the way in which evil destroys evil. Abimelech destroys Shechem. Shechem destroys Abimelech. Covenant curse comes upon them both. Abimelech proved himself to be the seed of the serpent. How fitting then that his head is crushed by a woman. He did not bring rest to the land. He brought violence. He brought bloodshed. He brought death. He did not bring unity to the people. He led God's people to bite and devour each other. In a word, he did them no good. But God... Their great king, the king whom they have denied, the king whom they have rejected, the king whom they have forgotten, well, he is still doing them good, isn't he? He delivers his people from Abimelech. He delivers his people from themselves. You see, as dark and as difficult as this passage is, and as dark and as difficult as it is, because because it seems that God is almost absent from the picture, nevertheless, we learn that there is a message of hope here. Even in this dark and difficult passage, we learn once again that God has not abandoned his people. Even when they are bent on destroying themselves, he proves himself to be their only hope. And dear friends, he is our only hope as well. It has been said that people tend to get the leaders they deserve. And certainly that is the case here. In rejecting the Lord, their great king, the people really don't deserve a leader any better than Abimelech. And they will get some leaders that are still worse. And Abimelech really doesn't deserve a people any better than Israel. Both are getting what their sin deserves. And God is giving to us a picture, a very vivid picture, of where sin must lead. But he's also setting before us a leader who is so much better. He's setting before us his own son. And while Jesus deserves subjects much better than us, we certainly don't deserve him at all. 
Once again, here in Judges, we do see a picture of ourselves if we're left to our sin. This is where sin leads. It leads us to bite one another. It leads us to devour one another. It leads to brokenness. It leads to ruin. It leads to destruction and death. This is a picture of the ugliness of the human heart of yours and mine. But praise God, that's not all we see here in Judges. We see here also the picture of our God. A God who is determined to save sinners. Even the chief of them. A God who does not abandon us even when we are at our absolute worst. A God who does not abandon us even in our deepest and darkest hours. A God who delivers us from our poor choices, from our bad decisions, from our failures, from our sins. A God who delivers us from ourselves. And that's a message we need to hear. And it's a message our nation needs to hear, and it's a message the world needs to hear. You have to do a little more today than look at the latest headlines or turn on the news and you're reminded there is so much trouble in the world and in our nation today. Corruption, injustice, racism, riots, protests, violence, bloodshed, murder, disasters, and a virus that has brought us to our knees. It's left us with much unrest, much conflict, much biting and devouring, not only without, but also within. And in spite of all the promises being made by leaders and candidates and those in positions of authority, we'll not find any of them, in any of them, the solution to our greatest problem. There's no king. There's no president. There's no congressman. There's no congresswoman, there's no Supreme Court justice, there's no candidate that can deliver us from ourselves. There's none that can save sinners except one. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's his gospel. And his gospel alone that can bring hope to this sin-ravaged world and to our sin-wearied souls. And it's him we must proclaim. And it's on his gospel that we must stand. And it's him we must proclaim not only to those who look like us, who act like us, who think like us. It's his gospel that must be proclaimed to all. Listen to the words of one author writing about the messy situation in which we find ourselves in these present days. He writes this, One of the most beautiful things we see in Scripture is the way in which God saves people whom we ourselves might deem unsavable. Jonah had to learn about God's heart for the nations from the people of Nineveh. The Pharisees had to learn about God's compassion from the Good Samaritan. 
The disciples had to learn about God's forgiveness from the woman at the well in John 4. And the early Jewish church had to learn how ethnically inclusive the church would be by watching the Gentiles come in droves to sit at the table the Messiah had set for those who would be adopted into the family of Abraham. God's compassion for the nations and for the lost ought to ignite in his church a holy fire, not a rebellious one. A holy fire that longs to see his mercy and grace bestowed upon many who are still outside his kingdom and are being deceived by the world's promise of hope apart from God in the gospel. When the world is on fire, only the cool waters of the gospel can genuinely bring healing, hope, and forgiveness. The world's offer of deliverance cannot avail because the world cannot change its own heart. But the gospel can. God is the great reconciler. He causes wars to cease and storms to be still. He accomplishes what riots, protests, and even politics cannot, compelling those who bear his image to love him with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind, and even to love their neighbors as themselves. And God works through his church. As the church proclaims the gospel, carries out loving deeds of justice and mercy, And as we pray, the world may be on fire, but Jesus is the living water the world so urgently needs. Dear friends, it's only as we gather in Jesus' name, forgetting for the moment those things that divide nation from nation and race from race, uniting instead in overflowing gratitude at the foot of the cross, it's only then that we will truly be a place of refuge from strife. It's only as we preach Jesus, the Savior of sinners, and the hope of the world, that there could ever go forth from this place a river that will revive a weary world. And that's because Jesus is the only King whose death brings eternal and lasting good to all who believe in him. He is the only king who is risen with healing in his wings. He is the only king who came, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He is the king who came to save sinners, who came to save you and me. He is the only king who does us nothing but good. And he is the only king whose promises never fail. So let us look to him and let us proclaim him and let our hope Remain always in him and in him alone. Amen.